There are many, many things in this world that cause us hardship. If we could go and start checking off things in this world that we would say we would like this world to be rid of, there would be a lot of stuff that would make that list. I can safely say that one of the things that we would like to check off that we would like God to remove from this world would be the issue of pride. I'm not talking about pride in the sense a parent is proud when Junior starts walking or talking or they win a game. Not that kind of pride. I'm talking about pride where I exalt myself at the expense of another. I exalt myself to appear better than I am. To exalt myself as, look, I'm more important than you, or that kind of pride. This morning, the question I'm asking as a sermon title, why was Jesus rejected? And straight out the answer would be pride. That's why he was rejected, because of pride. But let's unpack this. And for that, we want to spend the next 35 minutes or so to look at this topic. Why was Jesus rejected? The pride that stands in the way of spiritual growth, that stands in the way of relationships, that stands in the way of us getting together as one, that kind of pride is evil. That's what got Satan kicked out of heaven. That's the kind of pride that rejects others. It's toxic, it's contagious, it's dangerous, often fatal to the one who has it, and very hard to get rid of. There's only one real cure for this thing called pride, and that's repentance. Sometimes a person realizes they have it, and they want to get rid of it, and so they start on this journey, but very quickly realize that they do not have what it takes. They're not able on their own to do it. And this thing, pride, kicks into full gear, into panic mode, and just resists with everything it has. We see this in people everywhere. And you don't believe me? Just try telling a three-year-old, go say sorry to your brother for hitting him. Go say sorry. They don't want to. It's pride. It's pride. Pride and rejection are these two opposing things. Pride rejects people. It's, it's, it's just the way it is. And somebody who has been contaminated with pride will have no problem rejecting people. They just do it naturally. Pride forms cliques. Pride isolates itself. Pride elevates itself. That's just what pride does. Prideful people feel fully justified in rejecting others. It happens in so many ways. Let me ask you. You don't have to raise your hand or answer out loud. Have you ever experienced rejection? If you have, you'll know what I'm talking about. It is extremely painful. Rejection brings with it a very different kind of pain. It's an emotional pain that you have to have experienced to understand what it is. I want you to think of a time when someone you respected, someone you looked up to, someone you felt you could trust, you thought well of, and that person rejected you. How did that feel? What did it do to you? There is such a thing as simply making a mistake. For instance, you go into the hallway and somebody doesn't shake your hand. Oh, he rejected me. Not necessarily. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a scenario like this. For instance, you call the Joneses and say, hi, how are you doing? Doing good. We'd like to come for a visit. Are you free tonight or today? Uh, you know, today's not a good day. Uh, we're kind of busy. Had a full week and so, uh, yeah, maybe some other day. Okay, no problem. You hang up the phone and then 
few days later, you chat with your neighbor and says, Hi, how was your week? Oh, yeah, I visited the Jones last Sunday. Oh, the Joneses, huh? Oh, okay, so... Ah, I thought they were busy. No, we the uh, we uh, we called them and said they were free, had nothing to do, and so we thought we'd go over. You know what I'm talking about? Have different sets of standards of acceptance for different people. Do we do this? No, we don't do that, do we? Sadly, sometimes we do without even knowing it. It's a blind spot in a person's life; they may not be aware they have it. And if we're controlled by pride, sooner or later, we'll abuse people, take advantage of them, simply because we can. Rationalize it. Oh, I didn't add. Didn't need to take it seriously. Come on. Let me ask us this question. Is there anyone here who actually believes they can lovingly, humbly, and in a God-honoring way reject another human being? Some will say, but I'm not doing that. Really? What if the tables were turned? Is the treatment we give others, the treatment we want others to give us? It's a valid question. How would we feel then? Rejection happens all the time among children at school, in, in, at work, and people at the, on the job, every, every area of life and families and friends. And there's always pride mixed in with it when we do this intentionally. And I, and I stand by this statement, no pain hurts more than the pain of rejection. Even Jesus, when he was on, hanging on the cross, I'm not sure, I'm not trying to steal uh, uh, Lowell's thunder here, if he's preached on this, because Good Friday he'll talk about this, I'm sure, in some length. When Jesus hung on the cross, he felt rejection because God turned his back. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's rejection. Well, that was an ordained, divinely planned he was undergoing this experience of pain that we should have under-experienced. But it didn't start there. I, and we won't talk about that today. That, that's for Good Friday. I'm not sure what Lowell will preach on Good Friday, but that's for Good Friday, so we'll leave that there. But today we want to look at how Jesus was rejected in the temple. How he suffered at the hands of the Pharisees. So when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the people were all excited. I talked about that last Sunday. There was this loud celebration going on, and he was welcomed and honored as a king. In his heart, he was hurting. He knew how fickle and predictable, unstable these people were. He knew that by Friday morning, they would shout, crucify him. So when he arrived in the city, he went into the temple. He cleaned it out and all the corrupt, greedy money dealings that were going on. He took care of that. The religious leaders paid very careful and very close attention. They hated him and what he was doing. Not just that, this was a very unstable time in Jerusalem as it was because it was Passover season. And Jerusalem was never very stable at any time, and never mind now, and especially now. So now during Passover season, nothing could be worse than having an uproar or a rebellion. So the Jewish leaders were very much afraid that their carefully constructed power system with the Romans had to be protected and remain intact. They wanted no trouble. But Jesus was not just an average ordinary man. He was a very... He was not much to look at, according to Isaiah 53, as we talked about last Sunday, but he was different in the sense he, of his character. He didn't fear people. He didn't care what people thought of him. He would just teach the truth. He was fearless, courageous, and determined. And that was not missed by the religious leaders. They recognized him, and it scared and angered them at the same time. We finished last Sunday where Jesus left the temple and went out of the city for the night. And we, we will not read and will not talk about the cursed fig tree, that's also the story in Matthew. That's a sermon for another day. 
But Jesus came back to the city the next morning. He's back in the temple. He's teaching. And now it just starts kind of grinding again. It's getting bad. We need to keep in mind again what season of the year it is. It's the Jerusalem is crowded. There's lots of people there. And this is not the time for problems. Jews are coming from everywhere, which were the, every place of the Roman Empire. And so we will pick up the story of Matthew 21, beginning at reading verse 23. The story goes, When Jesus returned to the temple and began teaching, the leading priests and elders came up to him. They demanded, By what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? There was no denying that something big was unfolding. The results were clear. The evidence was there. It was undeniable. So the religious leaders, they're not happy. They're angry. And they go on the attack. And so they come to Jesus and demand he answer them the question, by whose authority are you doing this? They hated him and were, were very afraid and angry. And, and that's the mindset of which they asked this. When we consider these leaders, what were they missing? They missed the point that what Jesus was doing was in line with the prophecies that had been made in their own scriptures many years prior about the coming of the Messiah. Instead of attacking Jesus, they should have been doing research in the books of the prophets and check out, see, what are we missing? Is there something that we're not catching here? But that question was never entertained. That question was never asked. They never thought, could he perhaps be the Messiah? No, of course not the Messiah would be different. What do you do with people like Pharisees? What do you do with people like the Pharisees? A little bit of a side note here. The best thing with such people is the Pharisees recognize who they are. God loves them too, but they're blind, they're unteachable, they're stubborn, they're arrogant. and They just poison everybody they come in contact with. They need to be spiritually illuminated. They need to have the veil of darkness lifted from them. But these men, for them to consider and think that, well, maybe we've missed something. No, never. That would upset their carefully crafted construction of what the Messiah would be and should be like in their mind. And Jesus didn't fit that, and so he couldn't be it. Let's look at this phrase a little bit closer. Let's read it again, the next line. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things who gave you the right? As I was going through this, a thought came to me. They asked the question, by what authority? What they were asking and what was in their heart was not the same thing. Sometimes people ask one question and their hearts are something totally different. Really their hearts were like, and I don't have, it's not written, but in their hearts there was, there was bad stuff there. They basically said, we don't like you. We don't like what you're doing. We don't like the risk you're posing here. We want to get rid of you. So they come with this carefully crafted question, by what authority? Did it really matter to them? Were they as leaders actually genuinely, sincerely interested in knowing by whose authority Jesus was doing these things? No, they did not care about that at all. But they had to say this, they had to use this phrase to make themselves look good, like we're doing the due process here. Their real concern was not the truth, far from it. Their real concern was their own personal status as leaders and the security of the system they had created. No one is more dangerous in any form of leadership than a person who is blind and has power. A good friend of mine once said years ago, he said, power and pride are a dangerous formula. I've always remembered that. The Pharisees had both. They had pride and they had power. 
And that's what Jesus had to deal with. And that's what was happening here. Of all these things these leaders might be, of all the things they could be, one thing they were not, they were not wrong. You ever dealt with a person who's not wrong? Who can't be wrong? In their minds, they had never been wrong. They were not wrong now. And they would never be. Proud people just are never wrong. Proud people are never wrong. They always know best. These leaders are proud in every sense of the word. In this situation, there were in Jerusalem no people who were more blind, more proud, more arrogant, more deceitful, more self-focused, more self-righteous, more hypocritical than these Pharisees and teachers of the law. We do not have to read all the scripture passages, but I would really encourage you, go home and read on your own Matthew chapter 21, 22, and 23, and you will just find how severely Jesus rebuked these religious leaders. And in the temple of all places, he didn't have a private meeting with them publicly. There were people who listened into this. Especially, I would encourage you, read chapter 23 of the book of Matthew. In that passage, we find seven times where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. In the New Living Translation, it simply says, What sorrow awaits you, scribes and Pharisees. Let's read Matthew 23. Let's just read some of it. Matthew 23, verse 25 and on, it says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. Verse 27. What sorrow awaits you, teachers in religious law, law and you Pharisees. Teachers of religious law and you Pharisees. Hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Somebody came and told me that in front of a crowd, I would say, couldn't you do it elsewhere? Wouldn't we all feel like that? The audacity, the daring, the boldness. It's not fitting. If they were mad before, they were living now. This is just so totally against everything they would have expected. They, and here they are, Jesus... And I know I jumped ahead here, but let's go back to Matthew chapter 21. See, these guys cared nothing about by whose authority Jesus was doing this. What mattered to them was how they appeared to people. In their hearts, they had already rejected him. The question was not, are we rejecting Jesus? We have to get rid of him. The question is, how can we craft and engineer the plan to do it so it looks good on us? That's what was going on here. And they would come up with, on Friday morning, they would achieve it. But of course, Jesus saw right through their hypocrisy and their pride. And and again, let's just keep in mind, these men were the most powerful men of Israel. They were the elite, the respected, looked up to people. Was it even safe for Jesus to contradict them? But Jesus didn't care about that. Jesus was different. He was God's son. He knew what he was up against. He didn't fear them. He knew what they were capable of. He knew what they were going to do. He knew also he was going to give his life as a gift, as a sacrifice. So let's go back to Matthew 21, read verse 4. He says, I'll tell you. I'll tell you about what authority I do these things. If you answer one question. Verse 25. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? 
Ah, the topic of John the Baptist, huh? That guy. We don't talk about that one. They could have said that. That's not what's happening here. But this was a very loaded question. Jesus knew exactly what had happened only three years earlier. That's what the time John the Baptist had been busy baptizing. You see, we sometimes forget the timelines in these things, and it was a very short timeline here. Actually, from when Jesus started working till he was killed, it was about three years or so. It's not very long. So during the time of John the Baptist, he's baptizing. And you go back to Matthew chapter 3 now. We'll jump around a bit. Matthew 3, this is what happened in Matthew 3 verse 3. Here John is baptizing. Let's read that. 3 verse 5, sorry. 3 verse 5. People from Jerusalem and from all Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see there and hear John the Baptist. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed, who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Verse 8. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and returned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown to the fire. That's what Jesus knew. That's what the Pharisees knew. And that's what the people knew. It wasn't that long ago. This event in Matthew chapter 3 had happened only a very short time. Early three years is a very short time. The Pharisees hated John the Baptist. I mean, would you like somebody calls you a snake? They rejected him because he asked them to repent. He challenged them. And now, Jesus knows what happened. So they're, they're questioning. His authority says, by the way, let's have this discussion. What do you think of John the Baptist? He already had been killed. And those of you who don't know the story of John the Baptist, John the Baptist was a guy who came preaching repentance. He baptized on that confession. And, and he, was a, he was a very courageous guy. And so when King Herod took his brother's wife as his own, John the Baptist confronted him and says, you're living in adultery. It's sin what you're doing. Herod threw John in jail for that. Now Herod's wife, that new wife he had, she hated John. And so to make a long story short, she achieved her goal one day that um, she had uh, John executed. And John's head was chopped off, and, and so that was that. But the people, they liked John, and the Pharisees didn't. And the Pharisees remembered this. And John had challenged them, and so they had not forgotten. They were never going to entertain the idea that perhaps they were wrong and needed to repent. And so for their sakes, maybe it was just like, hey, John's gone, good, good riddance, he's gone, so no more problems with him. But what to do now with Jesus? What should they say to him when he asked this question? So they go to discuss it. Let's read, let's read the next one. It says, they talked it over among themselves. And they said, if we say it was from heaven, he will ask us, why didn't you believe John? In other words, why didn't, you, why didn't, why did you reject him? Verse 26. But if we say it was merely human, well, we'll be mobbed because the people believe John was a prophet. So they finally replied, we don't know. We don't know. That's an excuse. Let's again remember, remind ourselves that these were the elite. The all-knowing, most powerful religious men of the day in their nation. Everybody looked up to and revered them. Except, of course, John the Baptist. He hadn't done that. Now Jesus wasn't doing it either. We must, however, give a little bit of credit to these religious leaders as to the fact that they were able to think. In that sense, they were not idiots. Very proud, arrogant people, but they were not idiots. They were smart. And they knew how to process this. At least they thought they did. They didn't want to appear bad before the people. Didn't want to repent, didn't think they needed to. You see, when a person is blind, 
doesn't doesn't make them um, we could call it stupid. They're not crazy. They, they're very they're very they're intellectual. They're they're calculating. They're very self focused. There's a word I think called narcissistic. So the Pharisees they they process this amongst themselves. They go off by themselves, and they, there's only one way out of this trap. We can't say that it was from heaven because no. Gets us in the corner with uh, with Jesus. We don't want to. Jesus will tell us, "Okay, you, you rejected him. Why, why was that?" And if we say from people, well, then the people won't like it. Got to keep our status up. Got to keep our reputation up. Pride always gets you there. And so the, the people have a, the, these religious leaders have an awful dilemma here. They were God's chosen, God's elite, so they believed. And John had said, "God can raise children out of stones, make children of Abraham out of stones," and that would kind of cancel out their righteous works, so they did, would have none of that. And so they take the cowardly way out. They simply say, we don't know. That's a cowardly statement. And Jesus, of course, he knew perfectly well what their intent was. They wanted to trap him, and now they just got trapped in their own discussion. He turned the tables. And Jesus simply says, okay, you don't know? Then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. And it could have ended here. It could have stopped at this point in time. It could have just, okay, they've gone their way, and okay, it doesn't work, we can't trap them. So, But Jesus is not like that. You don't want to get into a discussion with him that's going the wrong way. And it wasn't going, to go, it wasn't going well here. This statement that Jesus gave them, they had not expected. So a little bit like playing chess. You never know the next guy's move, at least in all. Oh, I didn't know he was going to move there. They had not counted on this young 33-year-old Jewish rabbi responding the way he did and exposing them for the religious pride and arrogance and cowardice that they had. But Jesus is not satisfied to let it go. That started it, and he was going to finish it. Now he went on the offensive. Remember, they're in the temple. It's a public place. Everybody's listening. It says, verse 28, But what do you think about this? He says, A man with two sons told the older boy, Son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Which of the two obeyed his father? They replied, the first. Okay, they don't know where he's going with this. They have no idea. They're walking right into it. And with this short little story, Jesus is just bursting the spotlight of truth on them like a searing, blazing exposure, what they are really like. You see, there's some people in life you just don't want to mess with. You just don't want to tangle with. You just don't know what will happen. And they had totally miscalculated, underestimated this Jewish rabbi Jesus. They just had not figured what was going to happen. He's a loving, kind, gentle being. He, he, he sacrificed his life for, for sinners. And, but he, at the same time, he's, he's, he's very hard and very firm and very, he's rock hard against sin against pride, and he simply wouldn't stand for it. He didn't set out to argue, but he set out to expose them for who they were. He was not going to let them get away with appearing all holy righteous, coming out to attack him, when in their hearts they were rejecting him, they wanted nothing more than just to put him down. So in this little story, there's two types of people that are represented. There's the obedient son and the disobedient son, and Jesus is laying it out for them. And Jesus is pointing out here, it's the heart attitudes of the boys that are the problem. The one son outwardly refuses to go, has a change of heart inwardly, and obeys his father. He was proud, didn't want his father telling him what to do, but then repented. There's a sense of repentance there. The other guy 
to make himself look good, to be all holy and righteous. Yep, I'll go, Dad. I'll go. But then doesn't do it. Pride controls him. And they answer the question correctly. And then Jesus springs the trap. Let's continue reading. Then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth. Corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven of God before you do. You can't find more insulting, cutting, damaging words than those for a Pharisee. Tax collectors and prostitutes, they would never be seen alive near one. They disgusted—they were disgusted at these people. They despised them. They would have nothing to do with them. And Jesus, they go in heaven before you do. Jesus is literally just shredding their veneer of holiness, their veneer of piety. It's just being decimated. How dare he? Who does he think he is? I think it's safe to say that perhaps nobody ever before in their history had ever talked to them with such incredibly cutting words. How dare he? This was a smashing blow to their pride. This was an outright frontal attack on the role they were playing. It, it just was going the wrong way in every which way. And you know what this did? It, it didn't cause, you know what, maybe we're wrong. Maybe we should look better into the scripture. Maybe we should evaluate our lives. Maybe he's right. No. It just galvanized them into this core, solid group of guys. We gotta get rid of him. The sooner the better. And by Friday they would be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus shone the spotlight of God's truth on these men, and it was revealing a very ugly side. He was cutting deep. They were being exposed, and truth often hurts, especially in a proud heart. But it's even more than that, and now Jesus just rubs it in. He continued, he goes right back to John the Baptist. Remember that they hated John the Baptist, wanted to get rid of him? They couldn't stand him, because John the Baptist called them out, called them snakes, told them to repent. Then it says, verse 32, For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live. Oh, they said, we don't know. Hadn't listened. We cannot help but imagine what must have been going on in the lives of these leaders. One of our problems in our time is that they, that we are so far removed from that culture. We, f- we have to study to understand the culture. But this is far bigger and far greater than we just see on the surface. We do not understand that culture very well. We're so, we're so distant. But it's, we can just imagine, because people were very family oriented, very tribal oriented, very, very, um, community oriented back in those days. It was much closer than we are today. And if pride had a smell, these guys reeked. They were oozing and dripping with it. And Jesus goes right back to the main point where they had an opportunity to change their ways and they hadn't done it. He says, Next, next slide here. But you didn't believe him. While tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. You feel like, Jesus, can you just back down a little bit? Can you just ease off a little bit? He didn't. You know why not? Because eternity was at stake. And we as evangelicals, We have got this wrong notion. We've got to pander to the crowds. We've got to simmer it down, water it down, because soft and easy and cuddly and gentle. Would Jesus do that? 
If you saw a person ready to jump off a building to a burning fire, would you, and thinks he's jumping off into a trampoline, would you not warn him loud and clear? We have a job to do as Christians. I'm not saying you should go out to the street corner and shout, um, turn or burn from the street corner. That's not my point. But we have to live our faith and where we can stand up for the truth. The Jewish leaders had not just not themselves believed, they set a bad example. I won't read the passage, but in one passage, Jesus actually says to them, he says, in one of the Gospels, he says, you hypocrites, you go over land and sea to make a single convert. They were mission-minded. But then when you find, we turn to a son of hell twice as much as you are. They were the best the nation had. They were the best people. So much was wrong on so many levels. They were the leaders, the examples, the role models. Everybody should be looking up to and following. They knew God's laws. They memorized them. They preached them. And Jesus says, you guys are wrong. They were the role models, the spiritual giants. Sadly, Jesus has nothing good to say about them. He called them as he saw them. Lost men who needed to repent, and he confronted them. But you know why they couldn't? Because they were proud. And because they were proud, they rejected him. Instead of looking at their lives and seeing him, maybe he's right, maybe we should do something, they just, nope, they rejected him. And on Good Friday morning, they would carry out their evil plan, and they would nail him to a cross. And today, Jesus gets crucified Time and time again. We don't physically nail him to a cross, but whenever we put him down and exalt ourselves, we put him on a cross. Jesus confronted the pride of the Pharisees, and it didn't go well. And even after the resurrection, for, for a long time to come, there were some who repented. But for the most part, the Pharisees remained the stubborn, arrogant people they were. Spiritually blind and lost. No intent of changing. Jesus knew they would reject him, and reject him they did. Let's apply this to our lives today. What has changed? Nothing. Nothing has changed. People in our day today reject Jesus just as much as they did then. You and I, we reject Jesus when we don't think we need to repent. The truth of the matter is all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short. None of us makes the grade. We have all gone our own way. All of us are without merit. We all depend on Jesus Christ. We all need grace. We all need salvation. We all need to repent. The love is there. The grace is there if we receive it. So let me close by asking this question. Do you and I reject Jesus too? And if so, why? If we decide to live in arrogance self-focus and pride, then we're rejecting him as they did. And the reason was pride, and pride is still the same as then. So where are you and I in relation to Jesus? They rejected him. And by Good Friday morning, they would shout, they would shout crucify him. Last Sunday, I said, worship King Jesus. Jesus clearly told us who he was, who he is, and he's Lord and Savior, he's Lord and King. He came to give us eternal life by paying for our sins with his own blood. We all worship someone. And if we don't worship King Jesus, then you can put, our, put your own name there and finish that sentence and just say, worship King Self, and that can be your name in there. That's the difference. I would just like to close off with this list, how pride deals with life. Pride takes. Humility gives. Pride blames. Humility takes responsibility. Pride is greedy. Humility is generous. Pride is self-righteous. Humility is repentant.
Pride is arrogant. Humility shows grace. Pride loves secrecy. Humility has nothing to hide. Pride is deceitful. Humility is honest. Pride loves darkness. Humility loves light. Pride loves falsehood. Humility loves truth. Pride strives to exalt self. Humility denies self. Pride demands to be served. Humility loves to serve. Pride demands recognition. Humility is willing to go unnoticed. Pride rejects the cross. Humility embraces it. Jesus was rejected because of who he was. And if you and I follow Jesus Christ, the world will reject us too. But that's the road to eternal life. We have the invitation today to receive this gift of eternal life by putting our faith and trust in Jesus. We're invited, all of us, to live in repentance and humility and become part of God's family. This will never work in a heart of pride. Only the broken, the humble in heart receive this gift. That's how it was given. That's how it must be received. And Because the Pharisees could not do that, they had to reject Jesus. The choice is mine and yours today. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word to us. Sometimes you wonder why these stories are even in Scripture when they're so incredibly difficult. But they are warnings for us today that we need to take this seriously and receive the gift of eternal life with repentance and humility. May we do that. May we walk in your grace and serve you joyfully as our Lord and King. In your name we pray.